You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Guess four is gone. You are now joining the call. You are unmuted. Well, I don't think we need to go there. Scuba Obsessed Weekly Podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear, places a dive, and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 309, is recorded live December 1st, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson, coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where somehow I have qualified for free panties. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. Glad to be here, and I'm glad I didn't get what you got in the mail. And also joining us this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How are you doing today, Kevin? Aaron, I am doing excellent. How about yourself? Not too bad. I mean, I guess I shouldn't be upset about getting free stuff, but I you know, I just thought that was a little odd that somehow marketing had figured that I was in need of, of free panties. Just don't put them under your seat in your car. <laughs> we'll, we'll be seeing you on another program. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the... Uh, the missus might get a little bit perturbed with you there, Darren. Yeah, that would. Uh, that's a hard one to explain. Especially if they don't fit you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Could I say I found them in the river? Will that work? Uh, probably not. I don't know if you left them in the container. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Put a, put a little bit of put a little bit of mildew and moss on them. You know, I mean, <laughs> moss. <laughs> if you're going to go to that effort, you, why don't you just pitch them, get rid of them? You know. So. Hey, but. I, I if they fit you, though, I mean, that'll help you slip right into your dry or wet suit. Yeah, you just slide in. Well, you know, maybe if they were, like, well-lined or something, that might be different. I don't know. If they're nice and silky and slinky, you know. What the heck? <laughs> well, I'd like to thank everybody who's joining us this week. We have people in the chat room. We have Eric, who's shown up. Um, also, I'd like to thank all our Patreon supporters. If you like this show and you think it's at least worth a dollar, why not head over to our Patreon account? Follow the links from scubaobsessed.com. We appreciate it. Any amount helps. A dollar, if you go $3 or more, it gets you into the show notes early before the program records. Also, like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air another another season. If you're interested in the hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you want to tune in to WRVO Radio. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. The first article we have up is a follow-up for one that we had a couple weeks back. If you remember, there was a diver who thought he'd come across a nuclear bomb. Uh, Canadian authorities have done some diving, got out and took a, took a look at it. Uh, they've determined that is not the missing nuke from an American B-36 bomber that crashed near British Columbia in the 50s. Uh, they said it is a piece of, uh, equipment. Did they say, they, have you heard anything more if this is object, yeah, piece of steel mm. machinery? Hmm, you know, but, but would they, would they tell us if it was the nuke? Come on. Well, if it was intact and they could recover it, then they yes, they would. They well, and and this is this is Canada. I think they they would. It's not like they lost it. Mm, okay. Yeah. 
Well, if ISIS had found it, they'd let us know. <laughs> it, yeah. Just just look for the big mushroom cloud. Well, that they just say, hey, you know, we 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 came, we saw, we took it with us. Now you figure out if we found it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. You really want to do some terror, admit, you know, say that you recovered it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just read them off the serial number, and if the serial number matches, yeah, people in Washington are going to be a little excited. <laughs> and then I here we know. have some. I, go ahead. I hate to be always be the conspiracy theory guy, but I don't think they'd tell us. <laughs> I think we're I think we're getting the standard answer here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it's possible. Divers have been fined for raiding a sunken German warship at Scapa Flow. Gordon Meek, who is 66, and Robert Infante, 48, recorded a number of vessels, including battleship SMS Margraf and SMS Crown Prince Wilhelm. The ship and five other wrecks scuttled in the Orkney coast in 1919 are designated as scheduled monuments. Meek from Glasgow and American Infante were caught after being spotted bringing items aboard their boat. They pled guilty at Kirkwall Sheriff Court to one charge of contravention of Section 2-1 and Ancient Monument Archaeological Area Act 1979, Section 2-1. <coughs> Andrew Lang said, For a number of decades now, Scapa Flow has been one of England's top attractions for sports divers, with the wrecks being a great significance to our her- heritage and the local community. They've lain in the seabed for nearly 100 years, and the vast majority of these visiting have treated them respect they deserve. It is vitally important that these laws are in place to protect such important sites, and as the case where these are sufficient evidence of a crime appropriate for the public interest, we will prosecute. Well, it's good to see that, that they are monitoring these wrecks. You know, it sounds like they, they must have you know some type of surveillance because they obviously that they saw them bringing up artifacts onto their boat. Um, I'm currently looking at uh, scaplaflowrecks.com, and this is a phenomenal dive site. I would so be there if it wasn't on the other side of the pond. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. That, that well, website they've got there is is pretty nice too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it looks like it's really not quite the visibility I would expect. This is saltwater, correct? I mean, I was, yeah. I was kind of hoping a little, little better visibility than we have here, but still, you know, you, you've got uh, you know these these former warships. Uh, I'm not thinking that there's actually war graves, though. I think these are actually vessels which were you know used in during the war. But, actually, you know. actually, they are. Two of them uh, do classify as war graves because sailors were on them when they exploded. Uh, I, I know a little bit about Scapa Flow from the aspect. I uh, went to the ADC conference in uh, New Orleans years ago. Uh, that's the Association for Diving Contractors. And one of the presentations they put on was the salvage of Scapa Flow, which was a fantastic uh, presentation. Um, originally... I don't know how much of the history you know about this place, but the bottom line was I had I had a, made a couple of notes here real quick as soon as I find my notes. Uh, let's see here. There was a, a total of 74 ships of the high command in Scapa Flow for internment when they were discussing the end of World War II, uh, World War I, well, also in, and World War II. But of the 74 ships that were scuttled, 52 of them were salvaged, and this is what they were uh, discussing and showing pictures of at uh, the ADC. And you're talking taking apart battleships that were two feet thick of the steel. Mm-hmm. It was just freaking amazing to look at what they were doing and all the artifacts they took and brought back up. And it was salvaged for both, you know, the steel and for the materials on it. Not a big deal was made of it because 
obviously, somebody was making bucks. They basically have seven. Actually, if you look at the map for scalp flow, there's like 47 wrecks identified, but these are not the, the, the German wrecks or the items that were scuttled or the ones that got sank. Uh, seven of them are the military vessels, and this is what the gentlemen were diving on. I agree that since they already knew that they were historical wrecks slash considered um, wrecks with American or with soldiers on it, sailors on it, they broke the law, therefore they should have been prosecuted, which they were. And they were not, they were caught, by the way, by other dive boat charters who saw them bringing up bags of stuff. So it wasn't that the state did anything. Other divers turned them in. Okay. The reason well, it's considered a, a, a war, a war vintage is in 1917, the U.S. or the HMS Vanguard blew apart. It was not due to sabotage or anything. Um, basically their magazine blew up on its own. And totally, you know, the ship is then gone. So you still have the wreckage there and the body parts from that. You also had in World War II, uh, you had one that was actually torpedoed. And uh, let me see if I can find my note on that one. You had another royal type vessel torpedoed over a thousand sol- or sailors on it. So from that aspect, it does qualify as the war graves. The only issue I have right. is why is it suddenly considered historical fact when they brought up 52 of them? because it was profitable at the time. Well, and I, I think that's just the case. It's that if anybody wants it for something else, then that supersedes. So they've decided it's important, so then they're going to charge you. But but you are right. It's If you could get there and dive those, some of them are pretty shallow. I think the, the deepest one is only 40 meters. Actually, if you read through some of the depth charts, you'll see 45. Uh, and the gentleman who was doing the work on it, uh, Scott or Robert, uh, he's, he's exactly, I got the pictures of him and, uh, he was using the rebreather rigs. And matter of fact, looking at the bag he's got, it looks like he has some of the material in that bag. But yes, uh, you're right about the visibility is not that great, but it would still be quite interesting to dive those military wrecks. Oh, yeah. As well as all the other ones have got identified in that area. And, and yeah, that's that, a good, that's... And, and many of those are technical, aren't they, Mac? You're only talking 45 meters. Oh, you're I... doing penetration, sure, going to be very cautious. But even 45 meters, that's that's pretty down there. Well, and Mac, you were saying that was the the deepest one was 45 meters. It sounds like quite a few of these are well within sport depth. Oh yes, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if we had something like this in this area, I mean, I I would be so on it, and I'm sure you know many of our listeners would be too. I mean, that this would be. I mean, I'm I'm glad to see that they're monitoring it, though, or at least self policing it. Um, you know, if the other divers are watching for people bringing things up, you know, I know, hey, someone brings up something on my boat. They're all done off my boat, for sure. Um, I know the uh, the DNR here in Michigan is uh, watching a great deal more for, uh, you know, wrecks, uh, for artifact theft. Um, I'd never been stopped before, but uh, this fall I was uh, questioned by the DNR on two consecutive dives. And, you know, I gave them full access. Take a look. Help, help yourself, you know. Um, I know I'm not taking anything. I'm very much against that. But, um, you know. I know locally our DNR is watching pretty good, too. The, the interesting thing I find about it is that all the ship sinkings were by accident. Uh, it's not, when I say accident, they were deliberately sunk. But the only reason they sank them is because the German admiral thought that the negotiations were over and the, they were come back and take his ships. So to prevent that, he ordered them scuttled. So when they sank, they were fully intact, not damaged. Oh, so this yeah. wasn't like uh, like what we've had in Lake Michigan where there's spoils of war, you bring them back and sink them. These were, uh, these had everything on them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 
the, the Germans were real big on that. I mean, they, they didn't want their equipment falling into the hands of the enemy or to be taken. Um, actually, the Bismarck was really hotly contested whether or not the British had actually sunk it or uh, the Germans had intentionally scuttled it. But uh, Ballard located, you know, Dr. Robert Ballard, for our listeners, uh, big game of finding shipwrecks, he, he found it. It actually rests on the side of a uh, submerged volcano, um, I'm not sure if he dove it or sent ROVs down to it, but but he was able to verify that the uh, the, the valves were all opened. That boat uh, was intentionally scuttled. Um, the boat wasn't going anywhere. The uh, British had uh, shot it up pretty bad, and the, the rudder was jammed. So they weren't getting away, so they decided to sink it themselves. Now, the, the interesting part is most of them were sunk, again, deliberately back in, in the World War One. But the other reason it's considered that war grave is the the most recent one sank there was in 1939, and that was from a torpedo attack. And let me see my note. It was October 14, 1939. German torpedoes struck uh, struck the HMS Royal Oak, sank with over 800 lives. Um, even though it was only half a mile to shore, many of them couldn't swim that far in the cold water. Yeah, farther so than I did. The first one, you can see why it is considered a, a historical site from the aspect of, of war memorial. It would it'd been nice if you could have seen it beforehand. Uh, between 1924 and 1931, they raised 26 destroyers, one light cruiser, four battle cruisers, and two battleships. So and that again, was a that was a career for somebody. They were mining a lot of steel off the bottom. Oh, you, I, the 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 pictorials of them cutting apart that battleship. I mean, you're talking two feet thick. Yeah, it it was it was awesome. Which makes me wonder. How did they cut those ships up we talked about last week that are missing? The submarine and those other three or four? Well, those other three or four, were those actually battleships? No, no, these are, these are not battleships. Because it's, it's the battleships that have that really heavy-duty side armored plating. I'm yeah. sure that the other ships have some plating as well. Um, that was part, one of the um, issues with the Bismarck was uh, the Bismarck sunk the hood and that's what got the British so upset with the Bismarck, and when they, they went after it. But the Hood wasn't armored anywhere near like the Bismarck was. I mean, you know, those true dedicated battleships. Yeah, you see two feet of plating on them there. Um, well, these things were behemoths, so they were built for taking a pounding. Yeah, a little bit of steel. Yeah. <laughs> but you're right; it be nice. Well, another story comes. Go. go ahead. Places to go. Is, anyone, is anyone else getting audio on the? Um, I'm not getting it either. On what? In the in the chat room? No, I, I don't think audio is working in the chat room. I think, okay. think TalkShoe's having an issue. So if anybody comes in there, we'll just add them to Skype, and they can listen along firsthand. All right. I know Eric's rebooting. He's, he's trying to get back. He's trying to get up with us here, but uh, he's having some complications there, unfortunately. So, all right. Uh, in the U.K., they're doing a program, part of their This Girl Can campaign. Uh, they are encouraging women to get involved with scuba diving. And uh, they have a nice little article, which if you visit our website, uh, Jim Billings has been keeping up to date with the show notes, so you can click on over and see the full article. But they're hoping to get 100 women and girls interested in scuba diving for the uh, through the British Subaquatic Club across the Midland. You're talking about the pig farmer one? Yeah. Uh, the way they put that is pretty good. A scuba diving pig farmer and her two adventurous daughters. And the picture's pretty cute. Yeah. Almost looks like that picture of you in Reindeer Games. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, but it's been a while now since we did that. Anything to get more women in the sport? Yeah, 
Yeah, certainly. A little bit of lopsided. I think that that depends where you are. I I would be interested to know if in the warmer areas, if it's a little bit more even. I would think it is. I have met uh, a number of people who have actually talked to us in Niles when we're diving, come by. We dive, uh, but we dive where it's warm, (laughs) where you have visibility and where you have things to see. And a lot of them still dive, but you're only talking a vacation dive, but they're still diving. Right. Um, I, I just kind of going back to that. Is there? Does it make sense maybe to do a sponsored Discover Scuba for scuba divers? If you could convince somebody they could dive in Lake Michigan without being cold, you know, get them on a shipwreck or something. Well, we have. It's like you know, tomorrow. H two H two or at H two O is having a pool party in Bridgman. Right. And oh. part of that is free try scuba. Yeah. She does this every year. It's a standing invite. All you got to do is give her a call and tell her you're coming. Yeah. And that's in Bridgman. So they, they do that every year. When's this one? Is it coming up this month, you said? It's tomorrow. Oh, on Friday. Yeah, it's Friday, 7 to 9 o'clock. Oh. And all you got to do is make sure you call and say we're coming. It's They're doing with these uh, dish to pass little items. Oh, so kind of like uh, a little social get-together. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, And I think that's a good way of doing it because it's really a, about the social aspect of diving that keeps people hooked. Yep. So that's excellent. That's a, I'm glad they're doing it. I can't. I can't make it. I certainly would. I need to to do some tweaking on gear. That'd be nice. Yeah, to we do have that done that before as a club, but we have not done that recently because when we did it last time, a lot of us had kids, uh, so it was a family outing. Yeah, you know that might be something I could. My kids, I think I could now convince to to give it a try. And I have talked to Bridgman about us using the pool, and not a problem. Yeah, we can we can do it. Now we can rent it, and we can also rent the one over here at the YMCA. Yeah, I, did they change that one when they remodeled? No, it's just as nice as before. It's not real deep. I like the Bridgman one, especially the diving area. Right. And if they um, allowed you to go down in the diving area where they've got the viewport, you could actually do video, which mm-hmm. would be quite interesting. I've never seen the viewport being open where you could actually use it. It's Well, it shows you how long it's been since we've been there as a club. <laughs> Because I want to say when I was in there, it's, it's, I mean, you could see where it was, but I, I, it's either painted or tiled or something. It wasn't. Yeah. I think they even took the high dive down. Yes, they did. In the, in the state of Michigan, they changed the depth required for high diving or for diving in general, both low dive and high dive. And they increased the requirements for the depth of the pool, but they did grandfather existing diving, pl- uh, groups in, uh, but I think what happened is insurance companies said, well, if the state is requiring new pools, then we're not going to insure old pools. So I think even though many were grandfathered in, they just took the stuff out anyway. Yeah. That was back in the day when they had it. We could go up there with your gear on and walk off. And that's when you learned really, really quick because you had jock straps in on your BCs Ooh, yeah. or your inflators. We didn't have BCs like today. And then you jump off <laughs> as if you're doing a high walk. Oh, uh, so you, had, you did it from the high dive? Yeah, you wouldn't dive. You'd, you'd walk off. Right, right. Well, I would. I, I would. I would walk off and then lean back because you don't need everything to ride up to your chin. <laughs> hey, well, you don't want to inflate it when you had jock straps either, let me tell you. No. <laughs> but, that again, that's an environment you want to discover that in. Better that than in a, out Lake Michigan with big rollers. Yeah, but after the first person does it, you ought to learn really, really quick. <laughs> Yeah, is there, is there blood in the water? <laughs> no, but that high pitched scream until they went under. Ooh, yeah, it was interesting. 
Well, this next article is, is talking about muscles, muscle-strong glue bonds underwater sensors. Uh, Dr. Bruce Lee, an assistant professor of bio medical engineering at Michigan Technology University has used protein produced by the muscles to create a reversible synthetic glue that can not only bond securely underwater, but can be turned on and off with electricity. The muscles attach to rocks, docks, and ship hulls. They secrete a combination of natural liquid superglues and stretchy fibers called uh, bisal threads that work equally well in saltwater and freshwater can stick to both hard and soft surfaces is strong enough to withstand the roughest sea condition. The secret behind the muscle's adhesive success is amino acid called uh, dihydroxofemalanine, or DOPA for short, a chemical relative of dopamine, the neurotransmitter that helps control human brain's pleasure reward centers. DOPAs are a critical ingredient in the fastening of the superglues and bissel threads to a location. Uh, Leaders researchers teamed behind DOPA with polymers such as poly polyester and rubber to create synthetic glues that hold together in wet laboratory tests demonstrated this material can attach to a variety of surfaces including metal plastic and even flesh and bone on one very valuable quantity of synthetic glue is its versatility said lee we can change the chemistry to make it as rigid or as flexible as we need while still maintaining its overall strength and durability lee and his team are trying to figure out how to use electrical currents to create a chemistry on off switch which temporarily changes the dopa molecules to make the synthetic adhesive stickier not sticky at will so far to be able to accomplish this by tweaking the glue's pH balance, but are still working to achieve this capability using electric stimulation. I think they've got an interesting product if they can you know, do a little bit more refining. Yeah, and I'd be mostly interested in finding out, is there a, a glue solvent for it to, to dissolve those bonds? <laughs> well, they just got to electrocute you. The cattle prod will take care of it. Yeah, well. <laughs> Looking at the picture, have you ever seen one look that way? I've seen the mantle come up, but I've never seen anyone that, has those little threads coming out like that? No, I've not seen one at all that looks like that. Yeah, that's, I don't know, I mean, it's hard to get an idea from the side of it there. Yeah. There's, you know, there's been different varieties of muscles, you know, because we're used to the, the zebras and the quaggars. I mean, it doesn't appear to have the stripes we're used to seeing, so probably different, different variety. It is interesting, though. Yeah. Amazing how many things in nature, if we could just duplicate, it would be amazing what's out there. There's another article on that I was looking up under the scientist. It talked about, despite the gaps in the knowledge of how the mollusk produces the adhesive, there's uh, two firms are racing to derive profits from the muscle's glue. So they've already got people who are trying to do to uh, to figure this yeah, out. There's money to be made there, yes. But they're looking at it also for the medical applications. So yeah, I, I, well, for medical, that would be perfect because you could, you could, you know, have, a, have somebody all glued up. And then if they don't pay their let their uh, you know medical bill, then you just zap them and then everything falls apart. Well, then you go to the metal detector at the airport and you just <laughs> crumple down. <laughs> oh, it's always a sadistic angle here someplace. Yeah, everybody should be used to that by now. Oh yeah, Eric in here. He can listen with a chat room not working. Okay, you putting them into Skype, are you? Yeah, we'll you're... put them into Skype. You know, at least we can do. Let's see, and then we have uh, now Mac always loves these pictures up close with the giant teeth of the fang tooth. I know. I want to see that in my lake. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. I as you're grubbing around in a hole and 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 you put your hand in a in a crevice, isn't this what you want to find? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Nick, you think twice about grubbing out there. I love the one that's got some color. I, or yeah, swimming. I, 
I'd like to know if that's a real color, if they just added that in there. But uh, it's got to look well, a little bit of red in the gills. Yeah, unfortunately, they're between 150 and 1,000 meters down. So not not normally uh, something you bump into every day. I'm not going to anyway. Well, if if you're at that depth, the, the, the fish is the least of your problem. Or there's no problem because I'd be dead. <laughs> yeah, they said the has found uh, 500 to 5,000 meters in tropical and temperate ocean. The two middle fangs, its lower jaw, are so long they have a slot in the sockets on either side of its brain so it can close its mouth. <laughs> uh, the hunters are also vulnerable to predators by bigger fish such as tuna and marlin, so they use their dark colors camouflage in the murky depth. I'd like to see what the rest of the body looks like because it sure as heck don't look appetizing from here. I know Jim was talking about monkfish the other day. He said those are pretty good. So are these the same thing, fang tooth? I, I don't think so. Yeah, because well, he said Mac, well, the monkfish are the ones he said were eating lobster. So these are deeper than lobster. Well, Mac, if you scale down, it does have a side view. It's kind of a, I don't know, a, I think it's an I mean, it's showing some internal organs of some sort here, but you do have a side view if you scale down a bit. Yep, I went down and I found them. I'm going to look at a little sucker. Yeah. Yeah. They said they've they've also found see-through octopus, strange flattened fish, and a squid with a single bulging eye. Well, they said they don't get longer than seven inches, and they eat mostly small fish. I don't know. That or a piranha, which would you take, guys? Uh, well, these guys travel one. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd rather get bit by this guy than, than that piranha. Then we have Explorers have found a new shipwreck. Shipwreck Explorers, funded in part by the National Museum of the Great Lakes in Toledo, oh, yes, I have saw discovered this. a rare shallow draft sailing vessel that sank in 1872 deep water off New York shore of Lake Ontario. The Slouse Group Black Duck, which was sailing from Oswego to Suckets Harbor, New York, when it ran in a gale, may be the only full intact sloop in existence in the Great Lakes, according to a statement issued Friday by the museum. Its wreckage 350 feet down had originally been found by shipwreck hunter Jim Kennard and Roger Polowski in May 2013, but their efforts to identify two months later using remotely operated vehicles were compromised by effects of deep water. They returned to the site two months ago with improved search vehicle and tethering system and successfully surveyed the sunken vessel. The museum said that the success survey, Mr. Kennard and Mr. Pulowski, learned that another exploration team had found the vessel the same summer they did, but had also been unable to identify it. Now, isn't that amazing right there to have two crew, independent crews without the knowledge of the other both find the same wreck the same year? I wonder if it's just the the bottom, you know, if it was in the sand and had been exposed. Well, looking at the pictures, the pictures are awesome. And the idea of having to use an ROV tells you they're not going to be salvageable. And I, I like the part where they talk about doesn't contain any valuable artifacts. And it says it's significant in that there aren't many of the cheaply built scow sloops registered on the Great Lakes. Well, this has still got a mass standing up, doesn't it? Yeah, it said a single mass still intact. Wow. A short bow spirit would have held ropes to, to a jib sail. Yeah, I like the line drawing that they have. That kind of gives you an idea what it is. And that would have been the, the not, a little bit bigger than a pickup truck, but not quite a semi. So that's your common hauler for small loads. Well, it's going to be a lot bigger than a pickup truck, though. Well, I'm, I'm talking foot. equivalent in, in use. Yeah, because that's 51 foot long, scow schooner. Well, it said scow sloop, and we're no, normally used up here as scow schooners, which look just like that. The now, square bow, the square aft. Now, could this be similar to Max Rec? Well, doesn't it's, schooner versus sloop indicate how it's rigged? Because, you know, we're, of course, we're, we're familiar with the scow schooners. 
Right. Well, um, the scow sloop and the schooner, well, these are normally pretty much flat bottoms, not with a V-hull, not, not a big one anyway, not articulated. And they're usually used in shallow so they could go into shallow shallow ports and or shallow shores and then drag back out. Yeah, but I, I thought... I thought the main difference between a between a sloop and a schooner was the sail configuration. So, now we'll have to, we'll have to go back through our notes. I I'm rusty on some of this stuff. I just enjoy diving them. I tend to not get into like, all the because no, te- 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 technically, you know, to be ship rigged, it's got to have square sails on it, and to be uh, sloop rigged, it's got to have triangular sails on it. And um, you know, I and the day, if you look that up today's, it'll, you're going to be talking in modern terms because they say here a sloop is the simplest most popular rig today is a sloop as a yacht whose mast is somewhere between stations three and four and the 10 station model of a yacht <laughs> oh yeah so what does that mean to us yeah well, yeah i guess you have to talk to someone someone who speaks sloop <laughs> <laughs> but uh cool good finding they keep we keep finding them well, they say that it's the only one. I'm, I'm going to say it's just the only one they found. Oh, there yeah. are so many lost boats out there that there's really no way to say, um, you know, what is and what isn't out there. I mean, particularly when you start talking about stuff prior to 1880, um, you know, records really didn't start getting good until the 1880s. And, you know, this is clearly you know, 1872. So, um, you know, records going to be sketchy on that. Then you get, you know, ships before Civil War, and records are almost non-existent. So you, can, you can't say what is and what isn't out there. Yeah. No well, way. and also I think with something that is this shallow bottomed, it would have been covered up pretty quickly in many there, there could be a thousand of yeah, them you, you might not see. You're saying only drafting four feet. Yeah, this this is not a – and, you know, it's really not a not a deep-water boat. You know, I'm, I'm surprised they would, you know, have it out that, you know, 350 feet of water. You know, when you're talking about something that shallow – uh, flat bottom, you know, that this is something for the river, not not for the big water. Yeah, like Mac was saying, a lot of this came in handy when you had maybe a little dock that went 30 feet out into the lake. Uh, you could bring this in shallow and load. I imagine these are the type of vessels that you'd have seen going from, you know, uh, like Bridgman uh, over to Chicago. And France is claiming rights to a shipwreck lost colony of Fort Caroline. France has filed a legal claim to ancient shipwreck discovered off Cape Canaveral, saying it was part of the French fleet that in 1565 went to the aid of the country's doomed colony, Fort Caroline in Jacksonville. That follows a claim by a private treasure salvage company that found the wreck and seems likely to lead to dispute the U.S. District Court in Orlando over ownership of the artifact. It would be a high-stakes battle, state archaeologist reports, says the wreck, if it is indeed connected to the French fleet, would be immense archaeological significance. The records includes at least one particularly uh, spectacular artifact, a granite monument adorned with a symbol of French coat of arms, the fleur-de-lis. It's similar to one never discovered that French captain Jean Ribault uh, left in the mouth of the St. John's River in 1562 to stake a claim to Florida. That's your crown jewel there. It's your holy grail, said Chuck Mead, a marine archaeologist who led 2014 expedition that searched for but did not find the lost fleet. I would never have dreamed of it. That marker's not likely to be the one left at Jacksonville, over said Meade. Evidence shows Revolt's 1565 fleet carried several other storm markers to be used in exploration of the New World. Uh, Revolt's... Fle- Go ahead. No, 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 continue, please. Yeah, Revolt's fleet of uh, four ships left France to support the small, struggling French uh, Protestant colony of Fort Caroline, the Spanish Car- came about the same time with orders to wipe out the French outpost and land 
that Spain claimed for itself. Ribault sailed to attack the new Spanish settlement, St. Augustine, but his ships were driven south by a hurricane, leaving Fort Caroline virtually undefended during the storm. The Spanish marched north, took over the French colony, seizing firm control of Florida for the next couple of centuries. The location of the French ship wrecked in the storm remained a mystery for, for centuries. The Republic of France last week filed legal claim to the artifact. An Orlando co- court saying that under U.S. Military Craft Act, ships that sailed for France still belong uh, ships that sailed for France still belong to France. That's even if they're more than fourth century. Had passed, says James A. Gould, attorney representing France. He worked with several countries in numerous high-profile disputes with underwater treasure seekers. Admiralty law, international law is very clear that the ownership of a ship does not lose its ownership just because the ship sank. And he goes on for some more. But what it looks like is if it's not a military vessel, then they get to do salvage law, which 80% for the finders, 20% for the owners. Um, but if it's uh, French, then they get to keep it all. Well, what? I'm going to disagree, and I agree with what the guy is. He's fighting this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. One, they're suing you under an act that was written, the Sunken Military Craft Act. Mm-hmm. That's a recent one, okay? So this is 400 years ago. So until we made that law, it wasn't theirs, correct? It would go under admiralty. Right. So you, you're saying so admiralty it, law it, didn't cover that. that. Yeah, it's only because it's less than, I mean, if it hadn't been for the new law, would they, what would they sue you for? I mean, it's 400 years. Did you go look for it? Well, and then uh, the other thing I think of with this is how many government changes that France had since. I mean, is it the, is it the, is it modern France? Is it pre-World War II France? Is it pre-Marie Antoinette France? Which right. one owns it? You know, when you, when you destroy a government and then take over, do you just everything like you inherit it? I like the part where he says, for them to have that claim, they have to prove it was a ship, that ship. And he says, there's no way in hell they're going to be able to prove that because there's no distinguishable markings that they can identify with the ship they're claiming it to be. He said anything on it that may have been French could have been coming from as part of trophies, you know, from other battles, wars, or whatever, on that ship of whatever, you know, British or Italian or whatever, you know, country it came from originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think so much of this is just they're reaching out and saying, hey, we've got a claim to it because we're, this is how we interpret the law, and they're going to throw attorneys at it and money at it, and it's going to be whoever's got the deepest pockets is, is going to keep it. And, of course, a country is probably going to win out over an, over an individual on that, right. even if their claim is, you know, somewhat um, open to interpretation. Um uh, you, know, you, you look at, at, the, at the Griffin, you know, and everyone mm-hmm. knows that France is going to jump up and say, hey, the Griffin is ours. But then when you go back and, and look at, at who LaSalle was and who he was working for, you know, actually LaSalle was an entrepreneur, and he had renounced a lot of his uh, French rights. He was actually a, a Jesuit, and uh, when you become a Jesuit, you're actually, you lose a lot of your contractual rights as a, as a French citizen. So he wasn't even truly a French citizen, let alone on a French military mission, you know, but then France is like saying, hey, this is ours, okay, hands off. And you know, I think so much of this is just a matter of everybody wants it. If you've got some way to say you've got a claim to it and you can afford the attorneys, um, whoever is, is the deepest pockets wins. Well, if you if you look a little bit farther down the article, I don't even think France wants it. They've had a history of winning title to a wreck, and then they just give it to the state that it's found in. So this would be going to Florida. Because they, they don't well, they don't really want it. Um, I think that this could even be something that Florida called them up and said, "Hey, you know, can you claim this so we can have it?" Well, if this is one of those marker stones that they that they compare it to, the one that's missing off of Florida, 
you know, I mean, the, 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 then you know, the, there may have been some some exploration ties with it. Then, you know, I mean, I think Mac and I were talking about this a few years year or so ago about how they these explorers would go out and they would mark the mouth of a river. They would put uh, whatever their um, a marker from a marker for Spain or a marker from France or a marker from England there, and you weren't just simply claiming that river. You were claiming that entire watershed. So that marker had tremendous value. And now, and, and these now these people are working as agents of the government. So you know if, if it has that if, if that marker on the ship is that type of marker, then you know whether or not France wants it, I think they have a strong claim to it. Yeah. Well, I think. Well, what I mean, if you go back at it, whoever's got the most power, it belonged to them. That's the way it always has been. If, if America says, no, it's not yours, it's, are they going to fight us for it? Absolutely no. not. And how far back do you go? Well, hell, they were in Louisiana. They should own Louisiana then. Right. <laughs> well, they, they, they sold that to us, though. We, well, we paid for that. Well, maybe, didn't we get, didn't that come with it? Isn't that like a bonus? You buy Louisiana, you get the, the French shipwreck on the beach? <laughs> Again, they have to prove it's a French wreck and they can't do it. Now, it's got the Florida Lee on there. It's, well, but, um, that, but, but like, it up. it's cargo. It's cargo. Yeah. That doesn't, doesn't mean that that was that vessel. Yeah. I'm just surprised there's no mention of gold. Gold, yeah. It just says three French cannons. They're not going to mention Not up smart. Well, here's the other item. It says there was a granite monument, one thing, three cannons, French cannons, among 19 cannons. Well, three out of 19, if the others were, fr- were British or something else, does that mean what? Yeah, and generally those cannons are pretty well marked as, as, to, who, who, as to at least who, who cast them anyway. Right. Like the guy says, there's no way they can prove it's that ship because they don't know what ship it was. Well, did you look down in the comments? No, I'm, but I will now. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, to decipher it because I've got a few people in there who are getting a little worked up. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's why you love the comments. Well, Eric said it's pirates. I'll go with that. Yeah. <laughs> this is a little bit before the age, the golden age of piracy. Well, you, you know what they were doing. They, they, they attacked the French ship. They put it on there, and they were taking it up to Oak Island. Well, we attacked the French ship. We took it over, so it's now ours. Because we put our own name on it, like Dancer or Prancer, and then it sunk. So it's yeah. still ours, right? Right, yeah. Spoils of whatever. I love the words, though, when they say deliberately and wantonly raping and pillaging and plundering. This is pretty good here. Well, there, there's, there's a post in there that has to be over a thousand words. Oh, yeah, I'm looking at one. <laughs> It'll be interesting. Yeah, this is one you got to, uh, yeah, if you, if you go in the show notes and click on this article, the, the comments, because a lot of times comments are just name calling. But these are people who are really into it. You really get a lot some, of details. Open some wounds. Yeah. I like the next one you're going to talk about. Well, I mean, we were talking about gold and a shipwreck. Here's Here, this seems like this one comes up about every six months. Uh, Hitler's lost gold found on a Nazi shipwreck, a diver claims. The stash is worth 100 million pounds, has been subject to numerous treasure hunts at the 1940s. Adolf Hitler lost millions have been discovered in a board of shipwreck in the Baltic Sea, a British diver's claimed, saying it's from a gold hoard from the Second World War. Stash has been referred to as Hitler's lost gold. It's been subject to numerous treasure hunts since the 1940s, but Paul Sayer says the stash is 450 meters deep in the bottom of the Baltic Sea. A former professional said that he met a survivor on the tragic Wilhelm Gostolf ship, which was sunk by the Soviets in January 1945, killing 9,500 on board. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of people. That's the most. That holds the record for a number of people killed in a shipwreck. Wow. 
Wow. And it's amazing how, how few people even heard of that one. Right. Um, it's a, that's like killing a city. That's like just the whole city gone. Yeah, that, that, that right there is the topic for an entire podcast right there. I mean, what what went on with the William Gooseloft? Uh, that's the stuff nightmares are made of. It's it's truly, I would encourage any of our listeners to Google search Wilhelm Gooseloft. That's W-I-L-H-E-L-M-G-U-S-T-L-O-F-F. Sometimes it's L-O-F-F-T, but uh, it's just it blows your mind what went on leading up to that story and after that story. I mean, it's just astounding. You had nearly 11,000 people crammed onto a boat. Um, I think it was like 650 feet long, a good-sized boat, don't get me wrong. Yeah, that's not, but, that's not like your little uh, pleasure. Yeah, but it, but it wasn't designed for that by any means. Um, yeah, it was this uh, end of World War II, um, Operation Hannibal. They were... Uh, Getting the refugee, well, they were getting people out of the way of the Red Army. The uh, the Soviets were, uh, oh, the the Germans had invaded Russia. The right. Soviets were chasing the chasing the ch- chasing the Germans back out of Russia and into Prussia. And the uh, there were atrocities committed on both sides, and the people were fleeing in haste, in haste to get out of the way of the, the Russian army. And Operation Hannibal, they moved. Um, I want to say it was close to four million people out of the way of the Russian army, and they were loading up these these ships, um, sent them across the Baltic, and they were, you know, anything they could get, you know, for a transport. Some were just, you know, just big freighters, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, you had one uh, Soviet captain on a, on a U-boat, uh, Marinesco. Marinesco had been been AWOL and was facing a court martial, and he's kind of in the hot seat right now. He decides, well, I'm going to go out and do something really heroic and crazy and wild, and get some get get and get new attention here. So, what better thing to do than go out and torpedo uh, um, ships full of refugees? Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he he sunk two of them. I mean, another one you'll hear about. There, there were three of them that were. I mean, the worst. Maritime catastrophes, catastrophes all time. Uh, Goya, uh, Gusloft, and Steuben. Uh, Steuben was four thousand, and the Goya was six thousand. Sank by uh, the same sub captain. Two, two of them were done by the same. I, I believe the Goya and the uh, Gusloft were the same captain. I think Steuben was 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 a different captain. But yeah, this one guy did in well over ten thousand people. I mean, um, yeah, and he, he not only did he avoid his court martial. Um, posthumously, he was awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union, um, which is their equivalent of the Medal of, Medal of Valor. Now, um, wow. Gusloft was a, well, this might be a little controversial here, in my humble opinion, and others who have researched it, Gusloft is considered to be a legitimate target, though. Uh, Gusloft, at the time it was sunk, was painted in um, military, uh, uh, military marine camouflage. Uh, Gooseloft had a 60-millimeter 60, 60 gun mounted on the deck. Gooseloft had been used for a barracks for training U-boat crews. Uh, Gooseloft, at the time of its sinking, had a large number of female Marines on the ship. You know, there are whole, many, many reasons to say, you know, this was a legitimate target, but, you know, they're using military vessels to transport refugees, but what choice do they have? They're using, you know, as it is, they, they couldn't get everyone out of there. Right. Um, they had, go ahead. I'm just saying you're getting to the, that time of the war where things are starting to go bad for Germany, and they, well, they're limited on resources. And Yeah, the, 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 the writing was on the wall at this point. 
and uh, it's kind of a, I mean, read up on Operation Hannibal. Um, you had a great deal of the uh, German military kind of going rogue and you know, putting a lot of their uh, efforts and supplies into evacuating refugees. And, you know, it, they, they moved it to a, a staggering number of people. Um, you know, Gusloft was just happened to be in the crosshairs. Um, you know, three of the four torpedoes sent at it hit. Um, you know, the boat was just... Can, can you imagine? I mean, it, it had to have been shoulder to shoulder on this boat. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and I know Ballard did a... I know there's a, there's, a, there's a DVD on Netflix that because Robert Ballard did a little mini documentary on it. I I watched a lot of his stuff. It looks to me like he was actually just kind of probing to see how much interest there was in this. And uh, you know, lots of good photographs and video of the ship. Um, the ship is, I guess, not a lot to dive. Well, for one, the Polish government has you know put declared it off limits to dive now. Uh, it was considered a uh, navigational hazards, so they bombed it and depth charged it and blew it up pretty bad, so it's pretty much smashed flat now. Um, well, in the article, they're saying it's at 450 meters, so did it get, uh, did part of it get towed out, or did it... Well, no, that, that's that's the gold, the, the goose loft's in 150 feet. Oh, the gold's not in the goose loft? No, this was the just, I, I guess we kind of went off on a tangent here, <laughs> sorry. No, um, the, the gold, didn't he said that it was from a survivor of the goose loft? The former professor said he met a survivor of the tragic William Gusloff ship, which was sunk by Soviets in 1945. So, yeah, it was a, it's not, are they saying it's on the Gusloff? Well, that's, that's kind of, uh, yeah, well, Nazis were taking was, valuables, including artworks, gold, and other objects during the Third Reich. Uh, treasure hunters have been digging for it in Poland this summer. Uh, the ship, uh, the... Pretty easy to find Gooseloft. You can find well, Gooseloft on Google Earth. Right, they're saying the radio operator saw crates of gold being put on that boat. That's the first I've heard of that one. On on the Gooseloft? That's what the it says. Is, the Gooseloft is in 450 feet. The Gooseloft the Gooseloft is 150 feet. Well, the then he said he is, took is, some is portholes, so he didn't take portholes from 450 meters. It says the currently structure is completely broken up and left in a pile in the seabed, which would have left crates buried below. I think we have a little, maybe perhaps a little bit of deliberate misinformation here because the treasure hunter's not going to really divulge where this stuff is, um, not until he's got it on his boat, you know. Um, well, right. I, the, the only reason I think he's even talking about it is I bet you if, you if we can do some research, he's also, you know, organizing expeditions where you can buy a share and pay for him to go and do it. Now, there are, you know, you, you, we've even covered this under previous, uh, previous shows. You know, there are a tremendous number of ships in the bottom of the Baltic Sea. Oh, yeah. Um, but the Gooseloft is nowhere near that deep. I mean, the, the, the Gooseloft um, was kind of running along the shore. Uh, the, the, the Gooseloft actually had four different captains on it, and they were kind of like one, one wanted to one run deep and one wanted to run shallow to avoid the subs, so they kind of like, you know, <laughs> compromised <laughs> and ran in between, and they still were, you know, fodder for the subs. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, no. I think you're. I think you're right. I think what and this could just be bad reporting because is 450 meters deep? How deep the Baltic is? I mean, what's the max depth of the Baltic? Let's find that. That could just be somebody I'm did. Look, I'm looking at another picture from a different grouping, and they're talking about it was on the Wilhelm Gustav, according to the article I'm looking at now. No, the Gustav is nowhere near that deep. Yeah, I know she's 648, 600 foot long. It's a pretty good sized ship. Yeah. Yeah, max depth of the Baltic is 459. So that's what somebody did. Somebody just assumed being on the bottom meant the bottom, not a bottom. 
the the deepest part of the bottom. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm wondering there might have been something lost in translation too, because if it's 150 feet, well, 150 150 meters would be uh, 450 feet deep. And now we're looking at 450 meters, so I'm wondering if something might have got you know lost in translation between between uh, metric and um, you know in Birmingham, England. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but you know, really, a treasure hunter is not going to say where it is. I mean, the, the goose loft. I mean, if there was a you know this vast amount of gold in the goose loft, and it's the Polish government has control of those waters, um, you know, I'm sure they'd have a team out there. You know, there are plenty of people diving the Baltic. Um, not the goose law because it's off limits. But you know, although Ballard got permission to dive it, so I'm sure that the right people, the right connections, can, can still dive well, it. Also, I think a if somebody if if a government was convinced there was that amount of gold on it, they would approve it to be salvaged not only for the cut but just to get it off the bottom, so you wouldn't have every wreck hunter in the world trying to figure out a way of sneaking it up. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, yep. I figured that would be a good now. Yeah, but- Anyone read up on the goose loft? I mean, it it'll it just it blows your mind that there's so little information out there about what happened here, and um, it's astounding what ha- what happened. And there's been very little very little research done about it. Well, we 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 mentioned that this is you know, this time. I've been watching that show, Hunting Hitler, and you know if they're not full of crap and making stuff up, that's pretty interesting. Some of the stuff they keep finding on that program. Well, we keep on hearing more and more about these, you know, these troves that show up. I mean, wasn't there one pretty recently about uh, a mine in Italy? They found a bunch of abandoned cars, which they believe that those vehicles were used to transport a lot of the stolen hordes of, of artwork and loot. So, you know, they're finding more and more about it, but uh, not actually finding the loot. So Yeah. Well, how's this for a stocking stuffer? Was it Hammaker Schlemmer catalog is selling a personal submarine, and it's only one and a half million dollars. Looks pretty. Uh, yeah, two-person sub has six 400 RPM, one and a half kilowatt ducted propellers, good for maneuvering around, exploring underwater critters, reefs, and wrecks. Rechargeable 15 kilowatt battery, composite hull, acrylic domes overhead protect you and your passengers while snug, uh, while in snug carbon fiber seats. The sub, sub can be controlled from either cockpit. The good news is, is that uh, you get free shipping on anything that's over ninety dollars. You're gonna get they'll ship that to free. Doesn't give me the depth though, does it? Uh, da, da, do they give a rating? No, but I, I like this one. This one's a little different than some of the others. This one has more of a it looks almost like a molar air car, but underwater. Yeah, but I could afford the one I talked about the other day. Yeah, well, Max, yeah I, <laughs> what Max referring to is I, on I, Facebook. I, there's been a bu- bunch of uh, posts going back on subs that are for sale in the Midwest. Yeah, I, I like that one that you you were looking at, Mac. Now, did they, what was the price of that one? Did you ever get a, a number? Uh, no, he was not quoting a price. I had to call him to get a quote. But I looked up. I've been tracking H K two fifties or H two fifties and three fifties for twenty five years. I've actually visited two people who built theirs, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I could afford one of those, maybe. Uh, I had a chance to buy one many years ago from Woods Hole, and it's like, well, many years ago, $15,000 was a lot of money. Right. And they refurbished it, and that was it. You come down and pick it up, 15000 I kick myself every day. For not for not doing that? <laughs> yeah. And I've seen other ones in that vintage for around 30000 which still isn't a lot, comparatively speaking, to other ones. But it would be fun. It would be great to have one. Well, you know, there was that one. There's another one that's uh, on Craigslist. They only want a measly forty grand for 
told you, it's good for 400 feet. Well, if you can hear me, do you want me to go ahead and do the uh, item I had planned for yes. diver safety? You know, yep, it's a good time for it, Mac. Okay, I'll go ahead and just verbalize my stuff, and afterwards then we can talk if anybody has questions or you want to add something, okay? Right, my topic today is going to be on the emergency assistant plan, or better known as an EAP. Now, last week we mentioned how tremendously useful it is in having drivers take a rescue diver course. And in most of those courses, they will discuss the need for an emergency assistant plan, or EAP. Well, I looked that up to double-check and see exactly what was involved. I had one in our dive book, so I'll just talk about that one. Creating an assistant or a, an assistant action plan is not really difficult to do. Uh, the few components that should be included along are a few optional items. And the first item is, is what is the purpose of an uh, emergency assistant plan? And once you know that, it's pretty much easy to do the plan. In the case of an emergency, having an EAP available will assist you, the individual who knows about it, and or an uninformed bystander in contacting emergency services and getting them to the location of the accident. Now, in general, there doesn't have to be too much detail in an emergency plan. It's basically the who, what, when, and where. However, courses usually require plans for a specific dive site. Now, if you're doing Hayes Quarry or any place you're doing dive training, they will have their own EAP plan. As individuals or dive club, we probably should be generating one for each of the dive sites that we as individuals or as a club frequents. So what is the overall content? In an emergency, scuba related or not, what information do you need to have or you need to be able to have assistance with? Well, first item, of course, is contact information for the local services. It's easier now because most of the time it's dialed 911. If the issue is scuba related, you might also, not might, you do want to have the Divers Alert Network, the DAN emergency hotline available on your document. Now, what other information is going to be valuable? Having the location of the nearest hospital with a map or directions is really nice to have because sometimes it's going to be easier and quicker for you to pick up something or somebody and transport them. Now, an optional would be a specific map of your diving location that identifies all the landmarks in the vicinity of your dive area also. Another item you might want to also include in that is the emergency room contact number of the local hospital nearest where you're diving. And the purpose of that is if you're bringing a patient in yourself, it's good to give them a heads up of why you're coming, who you are, and what to expect. The EAP is another good mechanism to use to identify where emergency equipment is located, such as your throw bag, safety harness and lines, your resuscitator bag, better known as an AMBU bag, emergency oxygen, and your first aid kit. If cell phone coverage has not been verified to be available and confirmed, you need to make sure you know where the the nearest landline or telephone is functional that's nearby to you. And they also talk about one important thing to have is a script. Already have a script for somebody to read in an emergency when calling emergency numbers. And the key parts of the script are your specific location. Let them know it's a scuba diving accident because it helps them plan for what's going on. And a typical item would be, hello, uh, we have had a scuba diving accident. You identify where you're at. You can also say whether or not it's a drowning, heart attack while in the water. So basically what you're going to do is tell them what happened, tell them the victim's appropriate age, approximate age, ask if they're, you know, tell them if they're conscious and if they're breathing because that's items they will want to know. Tell them where the victim is, the location, optional directions if they need that. Identify any special considerations needed to help at that particular site, meaning they're trapped in the water, their boat is overturned, 
they're down a steep embankment. We can't get to them. It's good for them to know because they'll know what to expect when they get there. They'll also ask what care you're providing or you may put that out. You know, what are you doing? Well, we've given them oxygen. Uh, we've given them first aid. Tell them what you have done. Key item is to stay on the line until they hang up because they will probably have additional questions to ask you. They're going to usually ask you who you are. Are you related to the person? And what is your contact number? Now, from this, I'm also going to, we're going to have this available as a, as a handout or attachment. We're going to try to put that on the club site, but it'll be a sample emergency assistant plan and you can fill in the blanks to meet your need. And we'll use one such as we dive in Niles to give you an example of what we're looking at. Now, if you've never called 911, what are you going to do? What do you expect? Well, typically you'll be responding, you know, you'll be speaking to a professional emergency dispatcher with specialized training to deal with your crisis over the phone when you call that 911. So be prepared to, ex- to briefly explain what your exact situation is. And that's why the, e- the emergency plan comes in, that, comes in handy. Listen to the dispatcher, follow their instructions. To ensure the right people with the right equipment are sent to the correct location, the 911 dispatcher will ask you several questions and specific questions. Sometimes in an emergency, it may seem like those questions are being asked to determine whether or not you really need help. In actuality, they're being asked to determine the level of help you need. So help them out. Don't challenge them. Remember, trained dispatchers do not ask questions that are unnecessary. Typical questions they will ask. Dispatcher will always ask you to say the address of the emergency and your callback number for verification. They will probably have you say it twice to make sure they get it down right and they copy it down correctly because some places may not be able to find your computerized 911 address. There are four universal questions the dispatcher needs in order to put their knowledge and experience to work in a quick manner and effectively after they get the address and callback number. It's person's approximate problem. What is it? Tell exactly what happened. What is their approximate age? Are they conscious? Are they breathing? That helps them determine the plan of action. That usually takes less than 30 seconds. After that, you may be asked to do nothing, or you may be asked to get out of a hazardous situation, or to stay online and let them assist providing care over the phone. They always say, remember, in all cases, when dialing 911 is to listen carefully to what they're asking. Do whatever the dispatcher asks you to do, and don't tell them to hurry. They already know that. Every question they ask has an important reason. Uh, that's probably the major items I wanted to talk about. So if anybody has anything different, let me know. But EAPs can save somebody's life and can help you as an individual respond in an emergency condition. Comments. Can you if hear anybody us? Still there. I can hear you. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. So I was typing all that stuff in the chat. We didn't need to. Uh, but that, no, that's a good point in a 911. My, my wife does some dispatching, not emergency services, but that's one of the things that, you know, like you said, they don't ask those questions. They got a lot to do. They have a lot of calls to take. They're not inventing things just to entertain themselves or to torture you. Uh, it's information. For example, you, you they always want to know where you're at and the number to call back because if they drop that connection, if for some reason the 911 system didn't give them all the information they need, they want to call back. And also that can be helpful because uh, maybe you know, the number you give is the true number and not what they're seeing. Right. I carry that information for the club when I'm at a dive site in a red folder. Mm-hmm. I have been putting it on my dashboard because I don't have a waterproof folder to put it under the window, under the blade. Uh-huh. And quite often, if you've been to some of the ones you've done on the ISIV, I usually do a pre-briefing. Yes. We do a post afterwards. This is part of that package that I have available, 
and hopefully if we needed it, enough people know, you know, and usually everybody knows where the keys to my car are. Yep. Open it up, get the folder out, and it should have all that information in there for you. Yeah, that, that's, all, that's all good information. Well, on, on a club event that I know people are coming and I need to have the information, I have their emergency information. I have the medications are on. Those who wanted to provide those, we have those sheets of paper to fill out. It's folded up so nobody can see them except the doctor or in an emergency. So we do have medical reports on people who wanted to provide them. We have the emergency numbers available to go. Uh, we just need to make sure more people know where it's at in the car or make multiple copies of it. Yeah. Well, something else we may also want to consider is we could do a password-protected area on the website. So you, we could give that password to a emergency person, and then they would have a, they could get access to a copy of the files. That, yeah, for that those is, people who wanted to do that, a lot of people are very protective of the medical records. No, no, I, I, I certainly understand. I wouldn't say I wouldn't even necessarily even recommend that people do that. But well, um, we did what we do is, and after they give it to it, we fold it into three, then we laminate it closed yeah. with their name on it. Yeah. That way, if it's in the folder, nobody can get to it unless you tear that up, and that's not going to happen. Well, and that, and that shows, I mean, that's kind of a proof that somebody hasn't gotten into it. Yes. You can always calm somebody down. And the, in the chat room, they're talking about O2 asking, you know, if we do have O2, and we frequently do, not every boat, but many times we go out, we have O2. Well, generally in the club trailer or in the toy box, we have two Dan uh, oxygen outfits. Mm-hmm. And I have one, but mine's not a Dan, mine's a home built. Right. The only thing we don't have I'd like to have is an Ambu bag. Uh, what type of bag was that? An Ambu, it's up. It's about a four or five liter bag that you push. It's got a, a, a goes over your mouth and nose, mm-hmm. so yeah. you can press it, so you don't got to get down there and go breath to breath. You can actually push the bag, and that helps give positive ventilation if they've got a clear airway. I'm, I'm going to read off some of this advice, Karen Mann. Uh, Karen Mann, I, I believe that you're a paramedic. I know that she, she she's worked yeah. in ambulance crews here, um, but she has some good advice here in the chat room. Uh, Karen Mann's advice is uh, emergency action plan, what we usually call it EMS, disaster planning. Uh, Karen Mann also asks, uh, please use the ambulance for all but minor emergencies. They can start treatment on site. Transporting by private vehicles to ER can be risky. Uh, Karen Mann also says, uh, response to your comment about O2 when we go out. Yes, I used to answer 911. People get frustrated very fast. i got to have that info, though. Um yeah, but Karen, yeah, she has some good advice here. So, Well, and then she talks about that you can have your emergency info on your cell phone and uh, look in the app stores, and you can usually find some good free apps which will put emergency info. So if somebody's got your phone and they, uh, a lot of times they'll be on the lock screen if you look for the right app, you can. I, I put mine under ice. Yep, I've, I've done ice too. But like my phone, with that extra information. Yeah, because ICE is a just stands for in case of emergency, and I've got an uh, an entry in my contacts, which is actually my wife. And so if somebody looks for that entry, ICE, they would find her. But what I have found because I work in a business, uh, we have to have certain security settings, so my screen has to be locked. So some of these uh, emergency info apps can actually be accessed without unlocking the phone. So that when you press the phone and it lights up there's a screen and one of the options is emergency info and if they click on that it will give my contact information and my allergy that's a good thing for people who have yours coded yeah because it's a if you work for a corporation that frequently they don't want 
know, they don't want your email getting out that anybody could go and get on your phone and access your, your corporate email. So that's a way of providing that sort of information. And then you've also got, you just put it on a card in your wallet. Is another way of doing. Not not as good because they you know that might be a while before they get around to accessing your wallet. Generally, that's when you're by yourself and they find your body. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of recovery. Well, that is all great information. Emergency action plans. I think we ought to start putting that on the club site too. That kind of little trivia mm-hmm. that'll make it available for people to look at as a food for thought. Well, and that's and one thing you should really go ahead. It's something you should really put some thought into before you actually need it, because um, you'll. It's going to be a very stressful time. You know, we, we saw that even doing scenarios. Um, you know, just practicing when you're being tested or being run through it, just to get more familiar with it, is quite stressful in itself. Let alone if if someone that you know you care about, someone you have emotional attachment to, is laying there in distress, and your actions are going to affect their quality of life from that point on. Uh, this is thing, you know, and if you dive long enough. Uh, you are going to see accidents. I mean, things do happen. There are just too many variables out there. Uh, you know, number number one cause of accidents, uh, diaper error. Um, but, and, and you're going to see it. We, we all make mistakes. Uh, hopefully they're, they're not ones which, which cost us dearly. But be prepared for it. And again, it's not just scuba diving, but breaking a leg, getting out. It's still going to be a really interesting chore, depending on where you're at. Are you by yourself? Well, you mentioned it's not just scuba diving. If you've got other activities that you do, these same type of action plans could be useful. If you're going to go out and do some hiking in the mountain uh, with a group of people, yeah. it'd be good to have a, an action plan that corresponds with that. I know in Boy Scouts, that's one of the things that we have to have whenever we're taking a group of, of kids out is is an action plan that includes you know what we're going to do, medical information, have at least thought of ways of, of getting people back to safety if something happens. Yeah, I, I know that... Uh in my rescue diver course, we tried different ways of um, picking people up. You know, it was, I did uh, it was a, a patty rescue diver class, and they, you know, get, the, the manual showed you know half a dozen different ways to carry your buddy. And really, the uh, pack strap carry, which is where you get the person basically on your back and you, you use their arms over your shoulders as uh, you know, like, like like they were a backpack. And uh, you know, a smaller person can carry a larger person doing that now. Um, you know, think about it though. I mean, we know what it's what a challenge it is getting up a dive bolt ladder just by ourselves. You imagine doing that with a person or with a person on your back like that. Um, you know, you have to realize that you cannot put the rescuer at, in danger to save someone, and that's just a line that we're all going to. Hopefully, you you don't have don't have to find out where you stand on that line at some point, but you should be prepared for it. All items that are interesting, um, talking about Rescue Diver, uh, talking to Dave, who is going to be given that one in our locale, mm-hmm. said anyone who's got an existing or old certification like SLAM Rescue Diver can attend and audit his class at no charge. And I told him when he does present it, I will be there. Yeah. It never is a, a bad thing to review. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm going to do his O2, uh, O2 course. Always good to keep up on uh, current things. And my, my CPR is expired. It, it seems like it's it's expired almost more than it's current. Yeah, I think your CPR it's good for two years. I want to say, but, but most most of those medical classes you have to retake every two years anyway. Yeah, it's. So. Uh, I've I've had at work we've gone back and forth on the certif- certifying agencies, and there's one where it's only good for a year, and there's another one where it's good for two years. But it's been more than two years, I think, for me. Either way you look at it, so I'm I'm due. But the 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 thing is that uh, unless you're 
doing something that regular requires it as a as a civilian now it's hard to to do that without actively making it a priority well and you know, it's not cheap either um, I'm kind of fortunate I'm with the volunteer agency the the pay sport and I get it for mm-hmm. free but oh it, it it costs a few pesos otherwise yeah well I think when because um, I've been with the sheriff's department and we had a unit where the unit had to cover the cost itself and cost with trainers in the department was 80 bucks a person. And that was for the uh, books and registration fee because the person who's a trainer frequently has to pay the agency that certified them to cover some, you know, for them to cover their cost. Uh, and I think it was about $80. It's been, it was 50 sometimes, 80 another. And uh, and then at work they'll do it, but you kind of have to be in the office on the days that they're doing it. And it seems like I'm traveling when they're doing it, so I don't uh, always get it. Uh, she's talking about his, that, that Karen's done this so many times because she's renewed it over uh, 20 years in the medical field, and that's yeah, that's exactly it. It just you're doing it all the time, and it's good to keep up current, as Dave uh, talked about last week. I couldn't remember if we talked about it on the show or after. Everything everything. Uh, I think it was. I think part of it was during because we asked him, you know, we can can we tell what dive shop? And he said, yeah, so we did. Yeah. And then Eric's asking, does anybody have an AED? And I don't believe we do. Have a what? Uh, AED, which is the artificial. Yeah, right. I, I have looked into that. Uh, there are some used models out there uh, that we can't afford now. But by the same token, who's going to be responsible for it? On big club events, it'd probably be nice to have that. Again, with the aging divers that we have uh they're saying a large majority of issues with diver issues when you're over 50 uh usually have cardiac influence in there usually to the negative mm-hmm. and you may not have had it when the when the event started but it progresses to make it worse or you have it to begin with and then it just is bad to begin with but we've thought about it again who's going to carry it who's going to bring it it's it's awkward but i'd like to have one yeah <laughs> You know, the, the AEDs have come down in price. Last time I looked, which has probably been about four years ago, they had gotten down to the $500 range. But there is a, a maintenance cost to them. Yep, yep. And you have to, even though uh, many times uh, they're being combined with other, because uh, you got CPR, you got first aid, and I can't remember which one or the other, but it was now being taught with one of the two programs. Uh, but you, you do have to... Uh, you know, there, there's a battery, kind of like the old, now this ages me a little bit, but the Polaroid, if you ever pulled a Polaroid apart, they had a little magnetic, uh, not magnetic, a battery. And that was kind of the same thing that the AEDs, that they have a, a little battery pack that they, so it's not a bad idea to have. I know that they're, they've slowly been regulating, at least in Michigan, that if you're in certain types of activities, like all your health clubs are now required by law to have AEDs. And the health club I belong to, they have been used a couple times successfully. Uh, they well, had one used at the uh, YMCA about a week or so after I was last there. Guy on a treadmill. Yeah. Well, but well, but just keep in mind though that if you do have an AED, you do need to keep it in uh, working order. Yeah. Um, you actually are liable to keep that AED in working order. You know, same as if you have a fire extinguisher. Yeah, ex- exactly. It it's a, yeah, it's the so, same well, type of process. Well, that, you have to. It depends. You're, you're, if I have one in my car for my own use and it's not functional. I'm not liable for a diddly squat, but if I'm doing as part of a, a club, meaning YMCA or a business, I have a responsibility to maintain it. Right. Yeah, if it's your personal unit nobody knows about it, that's I, I still believe there's a law they can't compel you to be a good Samaritan, even though they do protect you when you are. Right. That'd be hard pressed to make you do that. Yeah. But still, if you 
you know, have one. I'm, I'm not sure about, about, about drawing the line between your personal usage versus, you know, providing one for an event. But there have been cases where people had ADs which were not charged, not functioning. They went to use them. They could not use them. And the owner of the AD was was successfully sued. I don't understand how you could, you know, if you didn't have it, you didn't have it. Were they there because they figured you'd have one if I died or had a cardiac? You're going to save me with it? I'd be curious to see by what logic they did that. It's it's the same as with a fire extinguisher. If If you have the equipment, you have to keep it going. So if you have it for your personal use, it's locked up in your car and um, you didn't pull it out, I don't think you're going to get in trouble about it. You know, I mean, who's going to know what was there? But uh, be careful. So Yeah, and, and Karen's talking about that experience with, with batteries that many times that she had found that when they were doing inspections, they were dead. And that, like at work, we do them like there's a process. We have a safety that goes around and hits the test button and sees whether the, the battery's charged, and it usually gives you an indication. Uh, she says in Ohio, EMS licensed folk are obligated to provide care even if they're off duty, and that's kind of the same thing with the doctor. But uh, I've never been at the EMS level, so I know that I wasn't obligated. Like I, I, Now, I would provide care. I don't mm-hmm. believe I was obligated. Well, when I decided to become a re- responder, I decided I'm going to provide care. So, um, yeah, well, I mean, I think that's why many of us, if you, you know, I think, I yeah. think if you lapse, if you let your, your update lapse, then I think that at least for me, it seemed like the obligation would end. You don't, you may not be current. You know, not, and also well, it goes the you, other you, way is, uh, you know, you, you should only be providing care up to the level which you're certified, uh, for. You know, you go beyond your training and you've got a whole nother set. Yeah. Well, I mean, still the Good Samaritan, you, you can still operate as a first responder. I mean, you can still, just, just because, well, I'm saying that you can still stop and, and, and do the best that you can, okay? Right. I mean, even untrained help is better than no help at all. You know, the main thing is uh, make sure no one else gets hurt. You know, I mean, um, secure secure the scene. Make sure you're not going to get hurt. And, you know, and, and you you may very well find that you can't get involved. I mean, if it's a car accident and someone got hurt, maybe you can't actually get out there without putting yourself into serious, in, in, into serious harm's way. Um you know, and these are all decisions which you have to be prepared to make if you're going to get involved in these kind of kind of situations. I think the interesting part is when they look at the data on it, they're saying sudden cardiac arrest is the leading causes of death in the USA, over 350,000 a year. And AED is the only effective treatment for restoring a regular heart rhythm during sudden cardiac arrest. And they're saying the average response time for 9-11 call is 8 to 12 minutes. And for each minute defib is delayed, the chance of survival is reduced by 10%. One of the big items, though, is if your heart is stopped with no electrical impulse, AED does not do a thing. It does not shock you into life. Most people think it does because of the way the movies are. Right. If you don't have a heart, electrical impulse in the heart, EA or the AED will not make a difference. Well, it's not even going to register that you're there. It has to register the electrical impulse. When you plug it in and you put the pads on, it is looking for an electrical um, electrical rhythm there. Yes. And Karen, Karen's saying that CPR is only buying time to AED, AED gets there. And well, if you flatline is dead, so if you have no rhythm, you're dead. Yeah, yeah, because it, it's detecting. It's it's got a fail safe program in there, so that it's not used in ways it's not intended. But you, you, you don't need to be trained to use an AED. I mean, it has, uh, you know, verbal instructions. Uh, right. You know, the main thing is, you know, op- open the box, turn it on, do as you're told. You know, you you, inst- you put the pads on, there's diagrams on them. 
Um, you push the button when you're told to. Don't push the button when you're not told to. Um, you know, open the box, turn it on, hook the pads up, listen for prompts. It'll walk you through it. Um, and, and keep in mind, you're, you're going to be doing your, your 30 and 2, your, your, your compressions and breaths in the meantime. But you're going to stop when the machine tells you to stop. Just listen to it. You know, uh, um, but, but don't have, you know, great expectations. Uh, usually when someone collapses and goes down, there's a good reason why they went down, which cannot necessarily be, be, be helped by compressions or shocks. Um, you know, you, you want to do your best, but, um, my, my last class though, they've already changed that CPR to 100 beats, two breaths, 100, two breaths. And they said, and if you don't breathe, still do the compressions. No, no, it's, 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 it's a hundred, the rate is 100 compressions per minute, but it's still 30 and 2. No, so you, not not the way I understand. 100, then you breathe. And they're saying it's not as important to breathe as it is to keep that heartbeat going. Because yeah, if you I, stop 30, you're starting over again. Well, the last class uh, I had was two years ago. I, I, I think it's, I, I know, I, I do it with the American Heart, American Heart Association every year. And there's been some talk about the standards being modified, but as of when I had them last year, the standards were 30, were 30 and 2. Now, the rate you're going for is 100 breaths, is 100 compressions per minute. So you're not doing a compression every second, you know, it's about a compression every second and a half. There's a couple, a couple songs keeping in mind, you know, uh, Stay alive, either, stay alive. Yep, yep no. to, to, to stay alive, or uh, to another one bites the dust. You know, either, either either one. You know, uh, but but you know, stay positive. You know, but yeah, Karen's saying thirty and two, and a hundred is the uh, is the rate. So, yeah. But uh. yeah, that's why it's always good to to update because it's my problem is I keep remembering the very first class I ever took is what's burned in my mind, which I think was ten and two back then. I was just looking at the Mayo Clinic for that, and they're going by what I was trained: uninterrupted chest compressions, hundred a minute. You do not try. You do not need to try rescue breathing, yeah. and that's what I was taught last time. Yeah, and I and I think that's the because they, as Dave was talking about last week, is uh, two, there are many people who would avoid doing CPR if they thought they had to do rescue breathing. So they're just saying that it's it's more important. Uh, looking at, um, yeah, and and I'm I'm looking with this heart.org, American Heart Association. And uh, they, they're they saying that if a bystander is trained in CPR and can perform breaths, he should add breaths to a 30 to 2 compression ratio. But I th- uh, they're also saying is that if you're the only person, they prefer you just keep doing. Right. Because well, this here said untrained, do the 100, uh, trained and ready to go. If you're well-trained, confident in your ability with chest compressions, instead of first checking the airway and doing rescue breathing, start CPR with 30 chest compressions before checking the airway and giving rescue breath. Yeah. And then it's a train but rusty. Uh, if you've received previous CPR training but are not confident in your abilities, then just do question, uh, chest compression at a rate of 100 a minute. And with kids, it's a little bit big time different. And just a reminder for anybody listening, we are not <laughs> providing you training here in a podcast. Go get certified yourself uh, yeah. and research it out. Because I'm, I'm looking through here, and if I read any of these paragraphs, they kind of contradict other paragraphs. So it's best just to go through the course and understand all the considerations or when you dial 911 they will ask you if you've had training in the past and sometimes they will if they think it's appropriate for you to be giving cpr they will give you instructions as you do it yeah, when in doubt do what you're trained to do already yep i mean something is better than absolutely standing around twiddling your thumbs well say if, if they're down on the ground and they don't, they don't have a pulse they're not breathing you're not going to hurt them from there so yeah. get 
And don't be afraid of breaking the ribs because you're probably going to do that. Been there and done that. Well, how'd the turkey dive go? Let's uh, we'll, we'll segue into that, Mac. What was your thoughts? I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was nice because we had both the toy box for changing after you were diving, and Karen brought the hospitality tent, and that's what I call it, because you had three sides up, so you could go in there. She had chair, heater, and a big table full of hot water and all sorts of drinks. And, and uh, coffee, the apple hot cider chocolate to cider. Oh, that, that cider was excellent, both as a hand warmer and an internal warmer. Uh, we had good visibility, uh, better on the bottom of the light, not too bad. First six, seven feet, I was mostly down at 18 and 20 with Bob. Uh, water temperatures, what, about 44? Mm-hmm. That's a Bob. And we had, sunlight. we had sunlight, so it was a good day. I think we had two wetsuiters and five dry suits, and we had nice uh, shore support, and we had nice food afterwards when you finally got your chicken wings. Yeah, yeah, we we did. Uh, you know, after after the dive, you have to go and get something to eat. So special thanks to Karen again for setting that up. Uh, Ken and Larry for bringing the toy hauler. Uh, uh, Lucy for the scotcheroos are always a great treat for after. Oh, we need that extra sugar to replace all our adrenaline uh, energy. Yeah, I kind of overdid it on on sugar after between Thanksgiving and that Saturday when I got in the scale on Monday. It's wow, I was a few months behind on my uh, progress. But yeah, a good a good time. I I didn't get actually get a chance to get in the water. I had all my gear there, and my hose and my backup hose wasn't working. So I just it's time to do some equipment upgrades again. We're to that time of the year where all, all gear needs to be serviced and, and any. Well, you need those replaced, not serviced. And if you're going to do any ice diving, you certainly want them done. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah. well, I did. The thing is, I did buy a. A new to me hose. I bought a used one from the dive shop, but even that's doing the same. I just, I, I need some, I need two new hoses for inflators. Uh, and I may take an opportunity to upgrade my inflator for my dry suit. And I also need to get a new back plate and wing. That may be my January, February. Now, Kevin, I, I think you did, so, would you do some mowing the lawn this, this weekend? Yeah, I, I do a fair amount of mowing, lawn mowing while looking for uh, shipwrecks out to uh, Gull Lake. Um, back and forth, back and forth to the sonar. Um, I found a lot more area where they're not. Uh, came across a very curious target on the bottom of Gull Lake, uh, 70 feet of water. Um, looked to be approximately 80 feet long, 20 feet wide. Even kind of was boat shaped. And this one had a little bit of relief. It you know appeared to come off the bottom a little bit. Didn't have a lot of structure to it. Decided to dive it. Went down to it. Uh, I don't know. It may just be a geological formation. Um, could possibly be ballast rocks out of a out of a boat i've heard some stories about the uh, steamboats out there uh being giving a viking burial you know they actually burned the things when they were done with them um and that would explain there being a lot of charred rocks on the bottom that's part of it although i did not find any wood amongst it and i did look around quite a bit um i'm actually gonna go down there again this weekend and uh see if perhaps the wood is underneath the rocks i don't know um in other words Rocks of all different sizes. Most of them were like quarter size. Looked to be charred. Brought a couple up, and sure enough, yeah, they had blackening on them, which came off on my hands. So they definitely had had been on a fire. Uh, kind of odd to see river rock at seventy feet that's been been burned. Know what that, you know. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'll be going back out there again this weekend, looking for continuing my search. There should be a number of large steamboats. I'm saying, you know, approaching a hundred feet long steamboats in that lake, and uh, far from giving up. Yeah, that amazes me when you say they're 100 feet long because it doesn't seem like that's a big enough lake to have 100 feet. Oh, there's, there's lakes much smaller than that with boats bigger than that. Uh, 
you know, uh, Reed's Lake up in um, East Grand Rapids. I want to say, I'm, I'm thinking it's about 800 acres, uh, less, less than 1,000 acres, and Reed's Lake has a 100-foot-long steamboat in there. Uh, you know, Reed's Lake had four different steamboats in operation on that lake. Uh, you know, some one of these lakes in this area, you know, had them in them. I mean, Mac and I were looking for one out there in, uh, in Pawpaw, Pawpaw Lake. Um, Are you talking about the Hazel, of, by the way, up in Grand Rapids or Reed's Lake? Pardon? You're talking about Pardon? the Hazel? The Hazel, yeah. Yeah, the Hazel. Yeah. What was that one we were talking about last week? Uh, big disaster one. I think I texted you some information on it. I'd have to get my phone. You were looking oh, at the one from 1859 over yeah. there. Uh, yeah, 11 people drowned on one in Clear Lake in Indiana, uh, not just south of Reading, Indiana. Um, I think that was Steuben County. Um, I don't know, it's kind of skeptical that boat would still be there and it, it's also not going to be a steamboat um seems kind of odd but most of the uh, descriptions on it agreed that it was a uh, a human powered boat had a couple of guys turning cranks on it so um not truly a steamboat should be good size though because it had a capacity of 20 people um that seems kind of a big boat to be human powered but that's what the accounts go by and if yeah. it's true and you found it that would be quite interesting because you don't see or hear about those kind of boats yeah i think it would be a fascinating find um i I decided to go to gull lake that day rather than clear lake because uh looking at oh there's there's, there's even a map online uh indicates where where it may have gone down um and it looks very much like it's relatively shallow like uh 25 feet of water the accounts say 25 feet of water the accounts talk about some of the bodies that were pulled out were in such shallow water that they they could have stood up in it. Uh, you know, people drowned in water which they could have stood up in. It was it was that shallow water, you know where this this this, this terrible thing happened. Uh, boat was a tour boat would circuit Clear Lake, 800 acre lake in Indiana. Uh, they were coming back from the tour. Uh, wind sprang up from the south, was washing waves over the deck of the boat. Boat was overloaded. Uh, boat had approximately 25 people on it, capacity of 20. Uh, people went to the edge of the boat to get a, the far edge to get away from the water washing over, <laughs> and uh, the weight of the people capsized it. Over she went. Uh, 11 people died that day due to that this this deal. Uh, found a great deal of information looking at old obituaries, uh, a lot of links to uh, you know different uh, genealogy websites talking about it. Um, some were quite critical of the captain. The captain was likely drinking. The captain did die in the accident as well, though. Um, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, pretty thoroughly written, um, obituaries about what happened. You know, different, several gals that went down on it there and their children. Um, it was, it was a, it was a terrible thing that happened. Uh, but the, you know, my thoughts are if it went down in 25 feet of water, 1859, that's going to be an easy recovery. You know, that's something which they're, they're going to be able to even a free dive and hook onto, okay? Um, I doubt they would have left it there. Um, there is no mention of any of the captain's kids. Well, the, the, the family was signed, and there was no mention of them running a boat business on that lake afterwards. Not to say they didn't, but I couldn't find mention of it anyway. So, hey, lawsuits, you know, someone claimed the boat, took it out of there, um, but I, I doubt that it's there. Is, is, is my guess. So, no, you there? 
Yeah, I'm still here. I'd love to hear about people going out hunting for shipwreck. But no, I, I'm I'm going to go down there in the spring. You know, once the weeds are out, my thoughts are that it's just the area where it went down is too shallow, and Google Earth shows weed beds in that area. So if it's there, it's buried in the weeds. The lake is very grown up, which means lots of phosphates, lots of fertilizer, lots of muck on the bottom to bury it. Um, it could very well be there and be buried, but the sonar may show that as well. So we'll see in the spring. Excellent. Well, Mac, you have anything you want to plug before we close this down? No, we did do a dive yesterday. yesterday. Oh, excellent. I'm trying to remember when we did that. The other day, this week, went down the Niles again. The pipe is totally covered up, very oh. fast current, and about foot visibility at the best. So we went above the dam. Uh, looked really good until you got in. <laughs> and where it used to be gravel and sand is about five inches of muck. So until you hit the muck, you can see once you hit the muck, it goes bye-bye. So if you're behind somebody who's mucking or just proceeding on the bottom, you got no fizz. Uh, water temperature is about 42 to 44, and there was some take-home bottles recovered. Uh, they were basically soda bottles with good silk screen because they're in the muck. And I think I got one bottle that was uh, a corker that was uh, plain embossed, but it was interesting. But we had fun. Karen came along on that one. And uh, so it was uh, Schultz, myself, and Karen. So she now knows a new spot to go to. Nice. And that's the first time I think Jim had dove up above the dam also. Now, you said up above the dam in Niles? Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I don't know if I've kayak. ever dove above the dam in Niles myself. Yeah, most of you guys have not. <laughs> it's in the same vicinity as the St. Fort or Fort St. Joe. Uh-huh. It's a kayak launch above by the dam. You don't really want to go towards the dam too much. Yeah, I... uh, lots of trees, lots of brush, limbs, snags. So you want to stay away from the dam side and go north or go upstream. Yeah, that dam, that dam looks pretty scary. It's not a high head dam, but it's a good, what, probably 18 feet, 16 feet? I'd say at least that. Yeah, and you, you see the way that it, because it goes to the French paper mill there, and the, the current coming in and out of the mill is not something you'd want to get caught in either. Yeah. And uh, I have seen that dam when... The water was flowing so hard you couldn't tell there was a dam there in spring. Just looked like a little ripple in the river. Well, excellent. Now, Kevin, do you, uh, you have a shipwreck this week? Yes, I do. Uh, featured wreck of the week. Uh, we're going to talk about the Daniel Morrell. Since uh, yesterday was actually the, uh, actually, excuse me, uh, Tuesday was the anniversary of the sinking of the Daniel Morrell. Um, pull up the details on her here. I pasted a couple of links there in the chat room. Um, Hey, I like Wikipedia. Some people don't, but you know, Wikipedia's got some bias to it. Usually Wikipedia, you can see the bias here. But the uh, Daniel Morell went down in 1966, November 29th. Only had a single survivor on the boat, which was Dennis Hale. Um, unfortunately, we lost Dennis Hale uh, September of, of 2015. Lost a battle of cancer, but he would uh, tell the story of um, well, his experiences of the Morell going down quite a bit. Uh, you know, many of us have seen him at the different shipwreck shows. A uh, real friendly guy. He was really a fixture in the shipwreck community. One of the uh, you know great shipwreck survivors there. But anyway, the boat was uh, coming across the lake. Had uh, let's get the story on it here. Daniel Morell, six hundred and three foot Great Lakes freighter, reading from Wikipedia. That broke up in a strong storm on Lake Huron on 29 November 1966, taking with it 28 of its 29 crewmen. The freighter was used to carry bulk cargo such as iron ore, but was running only with ballast when the six-year-old ship sank. There have been a lot of parallels drawn between actually the Daniel Morrell and the uh, the Carl Bradley, which 
went down in, in 1958. A lot of similarities. Both ships were made of that pre-1948 uh, steel, which was uh, much more brittle in, in colder conditions. Uh, both ships broke in half. Um, but anyone who wants to look up the stories, you'll see there's quite a bit in common with these two stories here. Um, Dennis does recall when he came out of his cabin uh, seeing the ship breaking in half. I mean, can you imagine in a storm looking down the deck and seeing the vessel you are on going to pieces right before your eyes? And they got into the lifeboats, and the boat continued to break into two pieces. He was on the bow section. The bow section went down. They got on the lifeboat. They believed that they were being rescued by another vessel coming towards them. No, it turns out it was the stern section had circled around, still under power, and ran down the lifeboat, knocking it over. Uh, There were only, I believe, four guys managed to get back in the lifeboat after after it was knocked over. I'm not sure how many were in it initially. Um, But of those four guys, Dennis Hale was the only one that survived. Um, The boat was found by David Trotter. I want to say I was in the early 80s, one of his earlier finds. It is a tech dive. It's in 220 feet of water. The other article I've shared in the chat room is uh, Great Lakes Underwater. That is uh, Bob and Jan Underhill's site and has a number of good pictures of the ship. You can see that actually there's even some ambient light down there at times. 220 feet of water. It's ambient light at times. Um, Not a wreck that I've dove. It's a wreck that I plan to dive. It's definitely a tech dive, but a very cool wreck. Very cool wreck. Yeah, that's one I wouldn't mind getting on. Do you have anything well, you want to plug before we go? Uh, just my usual. Uh, support your local dive shops. We all like to get the dark, get the bargain online, but those bargains online are gonna are gonna fill your school tank, your uh, scuba tanks. Also, uh, support your local libraries. Uh, use them. Don't abuse them. Thank them for being there. They uh, are great research tools. Excellent. Once again, want to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We had Eric, we had Karen, we had a few other people stop in Southwest Michigan and such. Well, thank you. We're going to try and do something different. We have a little problem tonight. You might not notice it when we edit the podcast down. Always, always a little bit of excitement dealing with technical systems. I'd also like to thank our Patreon supporters. We have Vanessa Homiak and Scott Halbert, who are at our Dive Nitrox level. So if you like the show, please on head over to our website, follow the clicks to Patreon, and give us a little bit of donation. Helps keep us going, and you'll see some of the benefits of that here come the next couple of weeks. We have some gear. Should have a little bit better audio. So are you ready for that time of the show? Ever ready. Bring it on. Okay. Well, in the holiday spirit, we've got one. This one's from Rod, so he keeps up his tradition of sending us truly bad scuba jokes. Is this from Down Under? Yeah. Okay. Uh, husband and wife went Christmas shopping. A couple were busy in the shopping center just before Christmas. The wife suddenly noticed her husband was missing, and they had a lot to do, so she called him up in the mobile. The wife said, where are you? You know we had a lot to do. He said, you remember the jewelers we went to about 10 years ago, and you fell in love with that diamond necklace? I could not afford it at the time and said, one day I'd get it for you. Little tears started to flow down her cheeks, and she got all choked up. Yes, I, I do remember that shop, she replied. Well, I'm at the dive shop next door to that. He probably won't hear anything about that later. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking that's when you discover that none of your keys work and you can't get in the house. All sorts of unpleasant things just before the holidays. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, so you, you, you may want to skip the rebreather. You know, that's a that's a good Black Friday 
for January 2nd items. Till an old next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. And have a good time doing it. Look at the Call recording has been completed. So I'd like the price for uh, refurbed. Cheapest one I could see is seven fifty. Eric saying a bigger hammer. I have no idea how I'm going to edit this. <laughs> you, you- Tax day is coming. Oh no! But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a three percent match, you can get up to hundred ninety-five dollars for the twenty twenty-three tax year. Oh. Yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.